Get started, there may be some more folks coming in, but as you know, this is the CSIS Careers and Global Development Series, and uh, with us today is Ambassador Tony Wayne. Uh, I think, hopefully, you've seen his bio and uh, his background, which is uh, rather striking. Uh, I think I first met you when you were Assistant Secretary for Economic and Business Affairs, and he did that through about three secretaries of state, as I recall. He's there forever. I just I couldn't move him on. <laughs> then he became ambassador to Argentina. He was an ambassador in Afghanistan, most recently ambassador to Mexico. And so he's had an incredible career um, on the development side of things and conflict areas. And I think Tony's perspective is a very interesting one that involves different kinds of AID. My background is humanitarian assistance. He's coming from economic development, <coughs> trade, and all these other perspectives on how development works in, a, in places in Latin America and in, in Afghanistan. So it will be very interesting. Tony, over to you. Okay. Very nice that you're all here today and seeing many people with a career in front of them. Uh, a lot of careers may be in front of you, or several careers along the way. So um, I did come to development from a, a different path. I started off um, going to graduate school in political science and decided I wanted to become a diplomat and then went into the diplomatic corps and started as a uh, for those of you who know something about the U.S. Diplomatic Corps, we have different specialties, and I was a political uh, cone officer, and then discovered uh, the importance of economics for diplomacy, and in that process discovered uh, the importance of different approaches to helping countries or supporting countries as they developed, and different ways that the United States was supporting development, and the United States could support development. And then uh, that led to discovering more firsthand how hard it is to actually support countries uh, to develop, to reach different progress levels um, in their own society, even those they say they want to achieve. Um, so I didn't come in the way Bill did, working on the humanitarian front, saving lives from the very start. <laughs> uh, but I, I came to appreciate how important that work is and how difficult it is really to, for countries to develop, which is why, if you look around the world, you don't find all sorts of success stories jumping out, because it does take a, a combination of a number of different factors that come together, many of which are inherent in that society, to really make those leaps along the way. <clears throat> and particularly, and we'll get to this, particularly a, a culture honoring rule of law and opposed to corruption, I think, are essential as you move forward in that process. And they're not easy. It's not easy for any external donor to really support that successfully. It has to be matched with what's going on in the country. So anyway, just let me talk a little bit about how I came to discover some of these different aspects of development. And then I hope we can follow, uh, follow your interests to talk about themes that are of interest to you and, and as you're thinking about your careers, 
what you might do and where you might go. Um, we can talk about that too. Um, <clears throat> in the 1990s, I, I actually started working with the European Union. And in working, and, and European policy more broadly. And what I discovered with the European Union is that one, they happen to be a big partner of the United States in development and humanitarian assistance around the world, and sort of nobody in Washington except for the development guys and gals really knew that. And they were really invaluable because they were, as, as our military colleagues will say, force multipliers for the United States. They would aggregate not perfectly, but they would aggregate different funds and programs within Europe and then help us to focus that on crisis areas. And that, that was a, uh, a, a real value. And what we started to do was talk with them more regularly and talk with them as a group more regularly. So it's much easier to talk to a group of European countries together than one by one bilaterally, especially when you're responding to a humanitarian disaster or a country Coming out of uh, coming out of war, um, and uh, then you can work with the United Nations, with the international financial institutions, and and come together. So I began to appreciate that. And then the other big thing that we were working on that happened, as you may remember, the uh, Soviet Union and its uh, once buffer area behind the Iron Curtain broke down, and a lot of those countries had a real interest in entering what they saw as the Western world, the free world, other things. And that really meant they needed to develop their institutions, develop their practices. And um, the United States had a number of programs helping them out, but so did the Europeans. And the real big draw for them was in two directions. One, a lot of them liked the idea of eventually joining NATO, but most of them liked the idea of joining the European Union because that was a symbol for them of the modern, wealthy world, and they could get into that. And so again, that pointed out to me the value of partnership and the value of the desire on the part of the citizens of another country really to bring about change. And so they were willing to do a lot of really hard things to change their institutions, their laws, their practices, and we and the Europeans were willing to fund that. Um, so, you know, not surprisingly, this didn't happen overnight, even there. It took 10, 15, some of them now 20, 25 years are still working on it. Um, but there's evident progress along the way. They did change their societies. And again, in most cases during this time, this was a popular thing to do. And it, it showed up again as you may remember, in the former Yugoslavia broke into a lot of warring factions in the 1990s, and there was some really horrible fighting. But what was key to ending that fighting and bringing it together again, once more was the attraction of, uh, I would say, moving closer to the European Union and a bit to NATO also. Both of those were real attractions, and people were willing to do really hard things in their own society and change their practices in order to get there. And our, so our development assistance at that time was a lot different than Bill ran into in Africa, because one, you're working with a population base that was pretty well educated. They all had, but most of them had a basic level of education. 
And so you could build on that. They could read, they could write, they could learn new techniques quickly. Um, and so a lot of them did quickly move into sort of new levels of demonstrated competence. Again, the really hard area, it seems to me, and it's still evident today, is corruption. And so when you talk about Bulgaria or Romania or Albania, um, a lot of times which will pop up right away is still rule of law and fighting corruption in those places. Um, and then I'm going to shift. Now we'll see that more in other parts of the world. Um, so in the early 2000s, I went from working on Europe to working on economic and business affairs around the world. So part of that is less directly tied to development, although I do think trade is, is really an important part of development. But there was trade, there's development, there's international communications policy, aviation policy, all those things. But um, in some key ways, they all do intersect with development. And um, what we started to do in the early 2000s was to look at, well, gee, what really are all the sources of development? Are they just official development assistance? And we answered it. We sort of asked that question because we knew we were going to answer it. No, they aren't. Because everybody around the world was measuring their contributions to helping countries develop by how much ODA they're giving, official development assistance. And ODA is very important, and that's what aid does, and they do it well in, in a whole bunch of different sectors, and so do others do it very well. But what we really figured out was, well, wait, there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on. The United States, we give tens of billions of dollars back to countries in the form of remittances from workers who work in the U.S. and send that back to their villages. That makes a difference. We have private companies that are investing around the world, and they make a difference in their local communities by job creation and other things. We should think about this and think about how we can encourage these different levers and different tools to have good, uh, good impact, not just sort of let them happen, because we've been doing that basically. They happened and they had some good impact. But we could also partner. And that's when the whole idea of public-private partnerships started becoming more popular. We started developing that, thinking about it, thinking how it could be part of our formal approach to development. Um, and we also started looking at other models of encouraging development, and that's where the time when the Millennium Challenge Corporation was developed. For those of you who don't know that yet, or it, my simple version of it, it's taking the good kids in the classroom and focusing on them. And it's sort of like, you know, taking them out to the advanced class and then they get to go to the IB and go forward. Now, that doesn't help everybody because there's still, as a number of you who probably went through some of those programs know, you had other classmates that weren't quite what, ready to do that. But this is what the MCC was basically doing. It was saying, okay, we have a set of objective criteria. Uh, if you meet those criteria, we'll give you a certain amount of money, and then you have to produce these results, and we'll negotiate those results with you. So you know what they are. We're not going to trick you. We're not going to change them along the way. And then if you do that, then you get more money. So that was a pretty revolutionary approach when it was being done in the early 2000s. And, um, I mean, 
we can talk about whether it's been successful or not, and it wasn't for everybody, because there are still other places you want to help, and there are other kinds of assistance you want to give, but it was a different way at looking at trying to boost some countries that were showing commitment and promise and, and help them get over those next hurdles wherever they were. So it was really quite a, a, a creative time. Um, and, and then at the same time, as you remember, there was a big effort, well, there were two big wars that started, Afghanistan and Iraq, which turned out to be very long wars. They're both still going on. But what that meant was that there was not only a coalition building effort to get military forces, but there was a coalition building effort to help those countries um, get their economies back in order after initial fighting and try to, to build. And there are two big things out of this, I'll, I'll just simply say. One is, it's important to have a coalition. And doing things by yourself or independently really doesn't work very well. But two, having a coalition and having a lot of money does not guarantee you success. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that, but one of the basic ones in it is that development just takes a long time. And the people really have to be, uh, <clears throat> people in the country have to want and be ready for the development, including changing some of the prevalent practices that will inherit uh, inhibit that development, and a lot of that revolves around corruption and, and a rule of a culture that encourages rule of law. Um, and there are all sorts of other factors. There's ethnic division factors, as we know from Iraq, the different tribal groups, the Sunni versus Shia in Afghanistan, the different ethnic groups that divide all of those things make it harder to do. But it also makes it hard to do if it's sort of accepted that um, that corruption is just a part of the way it is, and you do things. It, it makes it hard for development guys and gals to create projects and have those projects be actually done well, have those roads be built so they don't wash away in a year. Um, and, and it's really hard to build legitimacy of a government if the people perceive the government basically to be a bunch of thieves who are looking for any time they can take a few extra dollars from you, they will do that. And it, it really makes it very hard. That became, <clears throat> after a couple of years in, Afghan and, uh, in Argentina, after three years in Argentina, where sort of the institution, we can talk about that if anybody wants to pursue that, but institution building was one of their, uh, strangely one of their weaknesses. It's a country that started up here as one of the 10 wealthiest countries in the world and has sort of consistently dropped down very sadly because they have a tremendously capable population and a lot of natural rich riches. But in going to Afghanistan, I went there and was asked to try to pull together all the non-military assistance programs and coordinate them because they had not been really coordinated before. And so we had $4.2 billion of aid programs, non-military, plus another you know, $800 million to a billion in military uh, development, sort of short-term development programs going on. So there's plenty of money, but the results from those programs, I think, 
it would be fair to say, have, been, have fallen far short of the kind of effort and money we, uh, we put into that. My friend Rahula Osmani, who was the head of the Public Service Commission, or number two in the Public Service Commission at that time, can attest to the fact that it didn't help that we had a lot of money. We had to actually produce results with that money. And it proved really, really hard to do, and it has since then. I was there for two years, from 2009 through 2011, with a whole bunch of very dedicated development specialists, not just from the United States, but from other countries. And they were just, they were just overwhelmed by the effort. And we can talk about this, but there are a number of things going on. One was everybody thought we could change Afghanistan. It was once described as government in a box. You know, you go into an area and start doing these things, and a few months later, you'd have a functioning local government that everybody saw as legitimate, and they were producing services and doing all this. Well, it just doesn't work that way. And, um, and people were under really tight deadlines, and then our military colleagues were really upset with our development colleagues when they couldn't produce those kind of results right away. And, and it's, it, countries just don't change that quickly. Cultures don't change that quickly. It takes a long time, and it takes a lot of factors. And especially in Afghanistan, there was just a lot of corruption in all different places in the government. And it was often corruption based um, not solely on individual greed, it was often caring for families. After decades of war, people wanted to care for their families. <clears throat> but what it meant was it was really hard to actually build an institution or even a, con a project that would be well-built and would be maintained and would last over time. And that remains a problem today there. Then finally, and then we can start talking about certain aspects of this, I went to Mexico afterwards. Mexico, in a lot of levels, uh, is, is a developed country. If you go to downtown Mexico City and walk outside and look around, you can think you're in a big modern city, one of the modern cities anywhere in the world. And in a lot of ways, you are. They have a well-educated elite, very capable. But when you, the further you get down, and they actually have grown their middle class over the past 20 years, so they now have a relatively sizable middle class, but they still have 45% of the population living, working on the black economy, and a significant chunk of those people in poverty. It depends how you measure the poverty. So there are still a lot of development needs. But it doesn't come down to lack of resources or money. It, again, comes down to these questions of building reliable institutions, building a culture that consistently values and revalues by the actions of enforcement or, or non-enforcement, a rule of law, and not accepting a culture of impunity, as they call it there, where bad behavior just doesn't get punished. And um, it's, it's that sort of big, semi-invisible barrier that they need to get over to make that jump and that's what they've been working to get over. And the manifestation of it in the last decade has been this fight against uh, criminal gangs and, and drug smugglers. Um, again, Fed, as anybody looked at the front page of the Washington Post today, you saw a big story on this, a very good story, which accurately portrays 
what are um, use of drugs, what effects that has in Mexico because of the criminal gangs seeking to feed our market to make a lot of money and thus destroying a lot of communities um, in that country. And the, the institutions just have not been strong enough to counter that in Mexico. So uh, I guess to, to sum up, I, I, I would say development has all sorts of different per, uh, angles to it. And it, it's a big term and it covers everything, the parts I didn't talk about, the poorest countries of the world and how you help them. Um, and I should say one of the areas where we're, we are really good as a world community is in response to short-term disa disasters, natural disasters or human disasters. We know how to go in, patch people up, keep them alive, give them temporary shelter, help them a little bit in that recovery, but it's after you get through that recovery stage that even the most dedicated um, development specialists run into problems. And it is really hard to find, there are, but it's hard to find, I'm sure Bill knows some of them, examples of where countries have uh, been able to successfully move forward, especially if, it were, if it's largely because of international assistance. It has to be a combination of the, of the set of factors in that country plus help along the way. Um, though you can help in certain sectors. In Afghanistan, for example, there are a lot more kids going to school now and a lot more women and girls going to school than there ever were, than there were when we first got there. The, the maternal uh, death rate um, has dropped significantly. But in a bunch of other areas, it, it, there, it, well, in telephone, too, everybody has telephone now. You can talk to each other. And uh, that's a big change. But in a lot of other areas, they just haven't been able to make that progress. And clearly, they haven't made a progress in reconciliation in the divisions that are dividing that society. So let me stop there, and we can talk about whatever you'd like to talk about. Well, as you think about what question, I'm going to ask the first question. All right. Um, as you think about what you might want to ask him, remember when uh, to state your name and where you're from. So he has an idea of, uh, of who he's talking to. Now, as you say, I come from the other side of the development house. Um, and from your perspective, through the State Department and the various countries you've served in, would you have any advice to folks uh, seeking a career in state or aid or in this area? What, what are some important skills to have? Patience is really important skill. <laughs> um, I, I mean, my basic advice is that you should do what impassions you. And if that means uh, going to the Peace Corps and then going to USAID and working to help the poorest of the poor, definitely do that. If, if from, from my perspective, it was thinking about, I'd like to help people talk to each other to get through their differences. Um, I'd lot of, read a lot of history about wars between nations and things, and I thought that's not really a very good thing, even if it might be exciting as a kid to read about it. it you know, I'd like to try and overcome those things. So I headed in that direction of diplomacy as a way to overcome differences between groups. Um, but at each step along the way in that career, I would ask myself, even if someone said, oh, this could be a great job for your career, go and do that, I would sort of say, well, what feels good to me 
inside, what, where am I going to be more impassioned every day going to work and working on this? Because you're going to be better if you really care about what you're doing, not if, if you think this job's going to get you your next promotion, is my view, especially if you're going to go into this area. And that's why you get a lot of really dedicated people. But the other thing to remember is that it often takes a team with different skills to actually bring things to resolution. When we were in Afghanistan, for example, we had a lot of really great development specialists. But they could hardly present and exp express clearly yep. their programs and what they were going to do. So we needed to bring in, what we did is we brought in a couple of State Department officers to hear from them what they're doing and then to present it, you know, clearly, boom, 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 here are these four points, this is what we're doing, we're doing this as a team. And the, and the military guys too, once we get them together to work with us, we'd try to take advantage of everybody's skills and we each brought different things to, together to explain things. And especially in those aspects of development where you're talking pretty clear national security interests, it, it makes a lot of good sense to do that. And it helps the development side also to sit at that table and understand what are our big objectives here. And it might not be the same as my program in Ghana that I was running you know, five years ago. This is now a war zone, this is different, so maybe we have to do things here a little bit differently. We'll, our value added will be explaining why we have to have a long-term perspective and what you need to do to get them there. But we gotta understand these other guys are gonna be looking at who's the enemy, are they gonna blow us up, are they going to you know, derail our policy in this country? And that's part of that policy mix that once you get into the, to the public sector that you have to learn to maneuver and through and to, to use successfully and to have successful outcomes in that process. So I would have been the policy side and Bill would have been teaching me about what's <laughs> gonna produce the long-term results and I'd say, okay, but so how do we get this together and right. produce that result? Question. Please. Yeah. That, it's a very good question, and, and it also happens after you've spent several years in a country, you leave, and then you see the people take a different turn and not continue what you thought was a wonderful program and things like that. I think you have to do it by at least what I did every day or every night or in the morning when I got up, is I would... I would try and look at were there, were there any good things that happened today that I could look back up and what can I do tomorrow or in the rest of this day to actually push a good result or help, even if it's in the short term, help somebody in some project. You have to have those short term um, goals, daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly. And 
it, when you actually are running a program, of course, a project, you get to see that because you see the farmers or the kids or go visit the health clinics and you see a real difference. Now, that doesn't, you don't know that the country is going to end up well, and so you have to keep both of those things in mind, but you need those short-term boosters for your, your morale, and that, that's true in diplomacy, it's true when we I have one of my colleagues is here from the commercial diplomacy area, from the Commerce Department, and it's true for all of us working overseas. We run into these things and sometimes it seems like we're just banging our head against the wall and you don't get anywhere, but so you've got to find those, um, and there usually are some, if you look at it, some of those short-term rewards that say, well, you know, this can produce a good outcome in the long run. What well, this is, at the end, especially in Mexico, one of the neatest things that I got to do, and this is true in a lot of places, was young people, when we get to send them, even for short-term programs to the United States or other places, because then they would come back and you would see the difference of even two weeks or three weeks having a training, visiting a certain location, you could see in their, what they'd tell you and in their faces that there'd already been an impact and a change, and yeah, you don't know that that's going to change Mexico in the long run, but it had changed their lives in the, you know, for the next year or two, and, and that was really rewarding. If you don't mind standing, too. Sure. Hi, uh, I'm Matt King, and I am an undergrad at Duke University. And I just got back from a semester in Cameroon. So um, my question comes out of that experience. A lot of folks there are deeply skeptical of American intentions in giving aid, um, see it as more of a bribe for their leaders than an investment in their people. So what do you make of this assessment of aid, and what would you say to them? Well, for. <laughs> And Bill, you should say something about this too, since you were right next door. For uh, I would, one, I'd want to look at what kind of aid we've been giving, so I can actually describe the projects and what the programs were. So, first, I go back to them with the facts of doing it. Secondly, I, it depends how close I was to them or something. I would go back and say, look, you may, you're here in Cameroon. But you know, in Washington, nobody really thinks about Cameroon. We're giving you this assistance because we want to help your country and your people. It's not for geostrategic interests. I would say this in Argentina all the time, because there were all these conspiracy theories that we somehow we wanted to steal all the water from Argentina on Paraguay. And people really believed it. And I'd say, and I would honestly, I mean, after I got to know them, I'd be friendly first, but if I was having a serious conversation, I'd say, look, people know the tango and they sort of associate the tango in Argentina, but they don't really think about Argentina in the United States. We're here because basically we just want, we want to have a good relationship. We don't have uh, ulterior motives. Somebody, companies want to invest, they want to make money, but we're not here to steal your water. If we want water, there's more than we need in Canada. Plus we got plenty <laughs> ourselves. And, and, and I think a lot of times people sort of, where they're sitting makes them think that that's even not the center, at least one of the centers of importance in the world. 
And, and I would just point out, no, we're doing these programs just because we think it's good to actually understand each other between nations. And in the case of Cameroon, I'm sure we're doing programs there. I mean, we do want to have good relations with the government, but it's not that we have a big geostrategic plan for, for Cameroon. And um, we're trying, we may make bad decisions, but we're trying to make good decisions as to where we invest. And then I would look at where we've invested and, and argue about that. But Bill, what you Well, I, I come from the Cameroon. It depends whether you're in French-speaking Cameroon or English-speaking Cameroon. You have a very different perspective on things. And the U.S. has supported a rather long-standing government there for a long time. But I agree completely with what you said. It's, uh, I spent a lot of time in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And uh, we were pumping a small fortune in there. And when you talk to the foreign minister, they said, well, we know why you're here. You're protecting Rwanda. I said, oh, come on. It's the biggest country in sub-Saharan Africa. We want a good relation. We have a good relationship with Rwanda. We want a good relationship with YouTube. They didn't believe it for a minute. The only reason the United States invests about a billion dollars a year in all different kinds of aid is to protect Rwanda. That doesn't make any sense. Um, but that's, they assumed all U.S., probably still do, all U.S. actions in the Congo are related to protecting Rwanda. So, yeah, you know, it's, it, how you view assistance really has a lot to do where you sit in the country itself. You know, that, it does remind me, though, one of the best programs we have, I think, in the U.S. government is something called the International Visitor Program. And it takes young, youngish or middling emerging leaders, possible future leaders, and sends them to the United States. It used to be for a month. Now it's just for a couple of weeks. And they just get to come and see the United States. And that's the best program that really that we have because people come back with a whole different understanding of the U.S. It's strengths and weaknesses. But they see what a big, diverse society it is, that there are only certain people that are interested in international affairs. A lot of people, well, hi, nice to meet you. Where are you from? Where is that? What, what continent, you know, and uh, that it's a whole different place than they imagine, and which, as you know, is really true about the U.S. It, it, it's really a, a big place with a lot of different views, maybe going through a sadly isolationist phase right now, um, but exposing people to each other in this kind of way, I think, is one of the best investments we can make because it creates a basis on which you can uh, work together for a long period of time. In France, before I got into any development stuff, I was assigned to France for three years, and we sent on this program two future presidents, Francois Hollande and Nicolas Sarkozy, were young political leaders. We sent them to the United States. We sent three future finance ministers to the United States, uh, including the guy who got kicked out of the IMF for his sexual uh, behaviors. Um, <laughs> but basically what happened with these programs is that these guys came to the US, they, the French have this tendency of being very anti-American even though they're one of our allies. It's a long historic thing. They love us and hate us at the same time. But they came back, all of them, with a whole different understanding of what the United States was. And it really, I believe, set a good foundation for when they rose to higher levels of power that we could talk to them and work with them and do things. So, in case, sorry.
Um, my name is Andrew Lepsik. I'm about to start a master's program in American and International Economics. And my question is, you, met, you talked about this a little bit uh, with financial institutions and uh, just the private sector in general, but in your opinion, what is the role of financial institutions in development? Because for every success story, you have a tequila crisis or what's going on in Venezuela with Goldman Sachs right now. So I just was curious about your thoughts on financial institutions in development. Thank you. Well, like any institutions, they depend upon the wisdom of the people in the institutions in making decisions. Um, and there are, of course, different roles. The World Bank and the regional development banks are looking to identify projects that can make a significant difference either in one or a group of, of countries in the economic well-being in those countries. And they've made some good decisions, and then they've been criticized for some bad decisions in spending that money. Um, and I guess, you know, I mean, my experience with them has been overall positive um, and that they do seriously try to think of the framework within which you can have a number of different actors, including them, helping a country. But they're not perfect in doing that. The IMF has a different role, and that is uh, working on macroeconomic stability. And they will come in sort of as the tough, uh, you know, economists saying you got to fix this, 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 and this. And they often, their medicine is very uh, hard to take. And some people really disagree with what they suggest doing. Uh, in Argentina, for example, uh, when I arrived as ambassador, I'd been, when I was EB assistant secretary, the IMF took a very hard line and its members agreed that Argentina needed to take these very tough measures to deal with their debt. They did some of them, they didn't do all of them, but basically Argentines suffered tremendously. They did, a lot of people were out of work for a long time. Um, there was a lot of poverty that hadn't existed before. And so the attitude toward the IMF and all of those who'd supported their policy was extremely negative in Argentina. In other places, the IMF in Turkey and Russia even at the same time, uh, basically the IMF uh, medicine was taken and they came out of their crises. They didn't like it, uh, but they came out with a stronger framework than they had going in. So, you know, they have, it has strong and, and weak points to it and, and you just have to, if you're working with them or around them, you may agree and you may have differences of opinion to what they're doing. But they're, uh, both of them are staffed by international, uh, international economists. It's not one nationality that dominates it. It's, uh, it's really very uh, international approach to things. And then they often work with the UN, uh, UNDP, UN Development Program, in looking at some of these big overarching problems faced when a country is really having a massive economic crisis. And they, the three of them will work together with bilateral donors and others to try to come up with a framework for addressing the problem and, and with the country themselves, of course. Um, my name is Harriet Davis and I I guess I recently returned from a two-year teaching assistantship in Austria. 
Uh, and I'm curious uh, what you think. I've been given the advice with regards to like international relations careers to, to pick a specific geographical interest and like become an expert in a specific region. But given that you've been all over the world, I'm curious, uh, did you pick, have a specific interest when you first started out in development? And uh, I guess what you think of that advice. Thanks. I didn't pick a particular region. I like the idea of learning and changing and both regions and specialties. But I am, uh, I wouldn't, I would say a bunch of my colleagues did pick particular regions and became specialists in those regions. Um, so it, it's really, the advice is really, goes back to what I said earlier. If you're really impassioned by learning about one region and want to put all your effort there, then go ahead and do that. Um, the other side of it is, if you're, if you're starting off your career and you have that time to actually, and the opportunity to learn about different areas and different specialties, um, that can be very helpful later on when you're in a higher level of responsibility, maybe running a broader program um, or sets of programs that you have had that experience can be very valuable. Um, one of the, and in that side, of course, one of the things if you go on the development area and you're actually r running a program, you do get experience early on managing people. And that's a valuable, uh, that's valuable for all along your career if you've successfully learned those <laughs> lessons. You cannot successfully learn them also. Uh, but if you've successfully learned, that's valuable. So I think, you know, you just have to, I, I certainly wouldn't just take it as this is the gospel and this is what you have to do. And so the one example from my career that I'll just give along these lines doesn't have to do with development. But it does have to do, I was coming back from, um, what was I coming back from? I had come back from, well, two of them, I guess. One is I, I was in Europe, in Paris, and had a great time there, and then I was offered the opportunity to take a leave of absence and go work for the Christian Science Monitor as a journalist. And uh, nobody in the Foreign Service had ever done that before. Um, but I decided, yes, I would try and do that. It was a wonderful experience. I learned so much more about how foreign policy is made in this city than I ever could have working in one of the bureaucracies. And then after that, I was told by a number of people, okay, you gotta hurry up and get back to Europe and study that European stuff because otherwise they'll forget about you. But I was offered a job to go work in the counterterrorism office. And I thought, boy, that would be really interesting. And so I said, no, I'm, I'm gonna go do that. And so it turned out that was the time that the uh, Iron Curtain fell down. So we established counterterrorism cooperation with all the Central Europeans. And it was the time of the first Iraq war. And so we organized an international coalition to stop Iraqi terrorism because they were trying to organize pro-Iraq terrorist activities around the world. Wonderful experiences I would never have had if I'd gone to work on the French desk or, or somewhere else. So I just throw that out there to say you, you do need to say, think about what really you know, will get you impassioned to work harder and bring out the best. And if that means staying focused in Latin America mm -hmm. or Africa, then do it by all, all means. If it's not, then try.
try something else. I, if I could just add, I went, came, I came on the aid side of things, and I, all my graduate training was Latin American history, and that's all I wanted to do. My first tour overseas was Bolivia for five years, and I've never been back. It's been Africa and the Middle East, and I, when I left Bolivia, I went to the Refugee Bureau and State, and then I went back and forth between aid and state, and I, I'm glad it didn't work out that way. But uh, coming out of graduate school, Latin America was it. That was my focus for lots of years. I wanted to do that, and did it for a little while. It was great, but then ended up doing all other sorts of stuff. So that's what, what sort of makes you get up in the morning. And I think you have to be willing to try different things. In the back here. Good morning. Giovanna De Maio. Sorry. Okay. Um, I, am, I have a PhD from L'Oriental University from Italy, and I wanted to ask you if you share pessimism uh, towards uh, the cooperation between the US and Europe on the immigration crisis, which is actually you know, one of the most important dossiers we're dealing with, especially on which Europe is not united either. Thank you. Well, I share sadness that people have not cooperated better on this cri crisis, both within Europe and uh, transatlantic, from a transatlantic perspective. I was sitting in Mexico as ambassador when I saw this uh, crisis developing, and it was pretty clear. It, to me, it seemed clear early on that Europe in and of itself was not going to organize rapidly to handle this. and. So why wasn't the United States working with them to develop a coalition to handle this? Because the costs were going to be enormous, both from a human perspective, uh, but then also from a perspective of stability, geostrategic stability in the Mediterranean basin. Um, so I think it was a very big mixed, uh, missed opportunity that could have saved a lot of lives to early on respond more forcefully in a more coordinated way, still with the Europeans in, in the lead, but with the United States helping to build consensus about what to do and providing some support. I, I think the um, agreement with Turkey does seem to have slowed down the flow of Syrian refugees into Europe. What isn't addressed is the flow of Africans up to North Africa and then across the Mediterranean. And again, that means addressing these problems uh, in a lot of this, the countries that they're coming from, the, the problems that are sending people north. It's a, a little bit like the problems that we face with Central Americans heading uh, up through Mexico and trying to get into the United States you can try and stop them at the border, you can try and stop them at the southern border of Mexico, but you're not gonna stop it completely unless you can get the um, situation in those societies tolerable so that parents aren't thinking they're making the best choice by sending their teenagers by themselves to trek all the way to the United States. Same thing in Europe. The, people that are saying my best option is to leave and go across the Sahara and get to this horrible 
lawless place in Libya and then try and get across the Mediterranean. So anyway, I'm not, I'm not tremendously pessimistic, but I wish there was a much, I wish people would give it a higher priority. Hi, uh, my name is Dina Weiss. I'm a recent MPA graduate from Indiana University. And um, I wanted to go back to something that uh, we've discussed a little bit before, which is the conflict between development and our impatience and how long institution building takes. And I was wondering if either of you can point to any examples of policies, ideas, or organizations that are helping to address this issue. Thank you. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, from a factual perspective, we've now been involved in Afghanistan since really December of 2001, and this is 2017. That's a pretty amazingly long period of time. Now, we haven't produced any magical solutions, clearly, but there have been a number of, of, of steps forward, as I mentioned, in education and maternal health, in other signs, uh, uh, in access to information in Afghanistan that have been positive. But would I say that there's a, I don't think there's a magical lesson there. You know, I was thinking about this the other, yet just yesterday because South Korea is often pointed out as one of the countries that moved in the 50s and 60s and 70s through different phases to produce a relatively very stable democracy that even just went through a major crisis and produced you know, a democratic outcome of that crisis, replacing a president with a new president. And then someone pointed out to me, yeah, but you know what? We had 50,000 troops there the whole time. And that actually some Korean specialists have said it was that the practices over time, the practices of the U.S. military influenced the South Korean military, and they changed from a group leading coups to more of a having a sense of, of rule of law because they just saw their American colleagues living that way on a regular basis next to them. I don't know if that's true or not, but it, it does note that even in that case, which everybody would say is an economic success, and they're now rated as the number one innovative country in the world in the, in the rankings of innovation that just that came out uh, this year. Um, even there, it was sort of indirect in the sense that they were pro provided stability and protection that allowed them to go through those decades of evolution internally to change from what was a very unstable, corrupt system to a, a pretty stable and less corrupt system. So I don't know exactly what makes that, that, I don't know that there's one formula that makes it possible for all countries to do that. Sorry. <laughs> if, I, if we knew, we, I'd have a great book out there or something. Yeah, the, other, the other area, and certainly in Asia, that people forget about, but is Taiwan. And I was there not too long ago, and if you look at Taiwan in the 1950s, uh, they, were, they were worse off than almost any country in Africa. And again, they had a lot of help 
and, and stability there, I think that, that made it all possible. If you look at Africa, Tanzania is a pretty good example of a democracy right now that works and fits and starts. They did it in a little different way. The U.S. would not have been, was not particularly happy with, with the way, for example, how Tanzania developed, but it worked for them. And I think uh, the donor community, and I know this is, a lot of people wouldn't agree, but there's been a lot of change in Ethiopia. Uh, politically, it's still a rather nasty place, but there's been a lot of success in some of the institutions that are growing there. So I think, um, going back to some of the first things Tony said, I think uh, rule of law and anti-corruption activities play a very big role. If you can sort of get a handle on that, and like I said, I spent three years in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is a bit of a mess, and unfortunately it's even worse now. I, was, I left in 2011. But, but there are parts of that government that you can go to that are sort of uh, islands of stability and, and democratic activities and anti-corruption activities. And I think if governments are smart and are paying attention, you identify those, those islands of stability uh, and work with them and, and, and do the best you can to, to build those, those institutions where they are. Sometimes you find it, sometimes you don't. But I think if you look for that, you begin to make inroads in some difficult situations. Just a thought. Uh, well, I have one question I want to ask, if I can, then again. You, right. you talked about, um, didn't focus too much on the private sector, and uh, an or organization like OPIC, particularly in conflict states, and and what role that kind of an organization can play with the private sector in development? Well, let me say, talk in that connection, let me just talk about trade. As, as you all know, trade is uh, not a very popular topic in, the in some circles in the United States this, these days. But I always say it's really important to remember that we have more people in the middle class in the world today since globalization began in the 1990s than ever in the history of the world. And a larger percent of population are middle class or above than ever in the history of the world. In the United States and in certain European countries, the middle class has relatively lost some of its income and size. But in the rest of the world, uh, in China, in India, and other places, trade and globalization has brought tremendous relative riches and an economic growth. And there was just a study I read Monday, I think, of this week. Was it by Deloitte or the, no, World Economic Forum, with a projection that China and India are going to be the largest middle classes in the world in the next, was it, 10 years? and um, that they're going to be a lot larger than the middle class in Europe and the United States. And, it, you know, so we have to think what that's going to mean. So trade and, and private enterprise, not all private enterprise, but a lot of private enterprise in that trade, um, do a lot of good things as well as, no doubt, as some bad things. Uh, it certainly shakes things up. And when... Uh, and in shaking things up, there are both opportunities and there are costs. And so in my view, the, the role of government is to uh, help temper the costs of that change while encouraging the good opportunities. 
that go through and are, are, that are possible from that. This, in, in the sense of have encouraging U.S. companies to work in other countries, um, when companies are going, are willing to take a risk to go into a developing country with some degree of instability, other things, it's often helpful to offer them insurance for their investment. And that's what this Overseas Private Investment Corporation does. They look at very, uh, very creative ways to actually make it a bit less risky for companies to invest in promising countries, but ones where you aren't quite sure yet, and thus help those countries raise their game, create more jobs, develop resources or a, a potential that isn't developed. And uh, in my experience, that's been a, a very valuable and useful tool for the United States, and it actually returns a profit of, on average, $100 million a year uh, to the U.S. government. Uh, but it's one of the agencies that is marked to be uh, eliminated um, in the budget that was sent up to Congress 10 days ago or two weeks ago. And there are a couple other tools like that that are very valuable that are also reduced in, in size under the proposed budget. We'll see what happens. But in any case, I think it is really important to remember that trade can be a very, very helpful tool for countries to develop. I mean, how did South Korea develop? It developed because it, it, it went through, it's now one of the leading tech countries in the world and it sells its technology to other people all around the world and very successfully. And that's, it, it's a small country, but by doing that, it has become an eco, a relative economic powerhouse. Great, thank you very much. Thanks. Please join me. Thank you all. Thank you. And all the best for your careers in front of you.